I was outside and I ran into one of my neighbors and uh, she was telling me, as we were in the middle of talking and she said to me, you know, Tim, she's like, I get up really early in the morning and I have this long commute and I take this long commute and then I put in a full day at work. And then at the end of the day, of course, I got the long commute home. She said, stop at the gym, work out, and then come home, grab a bite to eat, maybe check a few emails and I go to bed. I wake up tomorrow, do the same thing. Next thing you know, it's Friday. And I blink, and it's Monday. And she just kind of paused and tilted her head to the side. And she was like, you know, there's got to be more than this. And, you know, when she said it, I was just like, as a person of faith, you know, and especially, you know, as a pastor of a church in the same neighborhood where this person lives, I was just like, there's so much more. There's so much more. I mean, there's, there's meaning and purpose. There's this whole other life that's unseen that you're not experiencing. It's this spirit life that's full and it's wonderful and it's awesome. Jesus calls it the abundant life. And it's amazing. There's all this other stuff. And that's the thought going through my head. And then there's this other thought that chased it right behind it. And it was this thought about all the people who I know of who are in church who still feel exactly the same way as her. And I thought, you know, that's really tough because now what? I mean, like, I know I can share my own personal journey and what's going on and my walk with Christ, but the statistics reveal that just coming to church and associating with Christianity doesn't seem to change the ball game for people. You see, there's this guy, George Barna, the Barna Group, and they do statistics, and they do a lot of statistics with the church, and it's staggering results when he studies the church. The, the most staggering part of it, the most peculiar part, is that when he looks at the Christian faith and those who are associated with Christianity, in general, the numbers, the statistics reveal that people who are connected to church versus people who are outside of the Christian faith, that they're almost exactly identical that there's no difference, that the, their own psyche and their emotions and even their morals and ethics and maybe even their lifestyles really don't reveal much that's different. It's, it's, it's pathetic. It's really sad. And it brings up this level of question uh, for me. It, it should bring up a level of question in all sorts of people, I believe, that says, is there actually somewhere within Christianity that, that offers us and affords us something that truly changes our lives, you know, that really does transform us. Is there something, is there some stripe or brand of it? Did I not get the right one? Is there something I'm missing? What's happening here, you know? And, and why, what, what is this? And, and, and can, is there something within Christianity that can actually change me? And, if we're going to answer that question, in fairness, there needs to be one other question before it, which is, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What is a Christian? How do we define Christian? And there's a couple of answers to that. I mean, the, the first one, culturally, that's just really easy is to say anyone who associates or affiliates with this huge world religion that we call Christianity. You know, anyone who affiliates with it, subscribes to it, adheres to some of the basic practices of it, then we would say, well, they're Christians. They're associated with Christianity. It's a world religion, right? So those who are associated with this world religion are, in fact, Christians. Well, it's a little more complicated than that if you get to the other answer because, you see, this is the basic text of the Christian faith, the, the Holy Bible, 
is the, is the text of the Christian faith. The, the problem is, is that when, when this book was written, all the stories it tells, and it reveals to us the early church, it reveals to us the first Christians and all of that, and in that, there was no world religion Christianity. As a matter of fact, the term Christian hadn't been coined yet, really. You know, it, it was just emerging. And the thing is, is that when you looked at Christians... As the church was emerging, they weren't Christians because they were affiliated with a religion called Christianity because there was no religion called Christianity. The only way that a a religion called Christianity even came to be was because there was first Christians. See, Christianity became a religion because there was Christians. It's not that there was Christians because there was a religion. As a matter of fact, the Romans, when they looked at the emerging Christian faith, they didn't think it was a religion at all. They were perplexed by this thing, and they thought maybe, perhaps, that the Christians were actually atheists. Why? Because everything they understood about religion didn't fit what these people did and what they were about. The whole like ritualistic stuff that happens in religions, the, the practices, the adhering to this and doing that, and there's a certain set of morals. It was nothing like that. There was all these people from all these weird different brands and stripes of life, who different backgrounds coming from different religions and all sorts of things. And, and there was this movement happening, you know? And the movement, it revealed something, and it wasn't, a, it didn't look like a religion to anyone who was watching. It looked like there was like this cause or this spark or something that happened that brought a whole bunch of people together. And there was one thing that identified them. You know what it was? It's that they were radically different. It's that George Barna's statistics, if they were taken back then, would reveal something entirely different. It's that these people are weird. That's what it was. That Christians are weird. Now, we're st- Christians are still considered weird all over the world. But for largely different reasons, at least in America, for largely different reasons. You see, what it was is that this term Christian, it came up, I I think what it would have looked like, my guess is from reading the scriptures and reading the history, what it looks like is that everyone who was looking around looked at these people and looked almost like it was a group of people who were love struck. Like something had happened in their life and they're like dreamy, like their life was different. Not that they don't live in the current world, but that there was something internally about them that had changed them and they lived a life that was very much different and their perspective was different. And there was this like hope about them and this love about them and this weird different thing about them. And because of that, the term Christian came to be. Because people looked at them and started to name them Christian. You know what Christian meant? Little Christ. Little Christ. It's those people who look like Jesus. And he was the weirdest of them all. You know? And those people who started to look like him and act like him, that was the term Christian. Well, out of that, of course, there's a whole world religion that ended up coming to bear, some of it coming directly from that, some of it coming from Constantine and Rome and all sorts of stuff where we built superstructures and generations later there's this huge world religion and you can easily, very, very easily subscribe to the things of Christianity without being Christian in the true sense of the word, without being a follower of Jesus, without being one who looks like a little Christ. You see, the thing is, is that George Barna's statistics, what they tell me is that if in fact there's nothing different between those who say they're Christian and the rest of the world, then my reading of the scripture says they're not actually Christian. Because the whole point of the idea of Christian was that they're different. 
you know? And if we're not different, well, it's not that I have a problem with the fact that we're saying they're associated with the world religion, but what I am saying is, is that in the truest sense of the word, we don't fit the bill. You know, we don't fit the bill. We're not little Christs, and therefore we don't fit the name anymore. We, we fit the name of, of, of perhaps the, the religion, but not of the actual personal name that that thing, what it really meant originally. And it's a sad day when over and over again, I experience people who know Sunday school stories and yet have a life experience that doesn't reveal the transformation of Jesus in their, in their life. And, you know, what Christianity actually is supposed to be is not really a religion. What it's actually supposed to be is a living relationship with God, correct? We know this, that it's a living relationship with God. That this isn't that we, we go through a certain set of practices and ascribe to certain morals. Instead, this is Jesus who says he's the way and he's the truth and he's the life. And that if we enter through him, we have access to God himself. And that it's not about a religion to make my, raise my, my spiritual or religious self-esteem. This is actually an ability for me to personally connect with the God of the universe and have my life transformed by him through the person of Jesus Christ who isn't dead, who's alive, and is able to, to connect with me through the person of the Holy Spirit. And as that mentality has grown, some have really started to say, well, then if really what it is is a relationship with God and, and not just a set of doctrines or not just a set of practices, then I really don't need to, to understand doctrine or I really don't need to understand the Bible. I just need to have these experiences with God, you know? That's really been one of the things that's happened. And because of that, George Barna's statistics also reveal that biblical literacy in the church is at, a, is at the lowest it's been in a long, long time that the average person in the church does not understand this Bible, does not know this Bible, does not understand what's in it, and yet we say that we're followers of Christ, and yet how do we know Christ? We know him through this. We may say that we know him because of the experiences we have in our lives, and he may actually be present in those experiences, but we have no way of really knowing if it's him or not unless we have the reality check of the scriptures informing us. You see, there's all sorts of people who have spiritual experiences all over the world all the time, but how do we know that it's the way, that it's the truth, that it's the life, that it's actually Jesus, and that this thing can actually transform my life? There's only one way to really know. You see, these scriptures, not only are they the biography that reveals the historical Jesus to us, and not only are they the very words in which God uses, like his language to communicate to us, but what this Bible is, is when it comes to a mystical relationship that I'm called to have with an unseen God, this right here is the reality check around that relationship. If I'm really on target. And what happens so often is we have this quote-unquote mystical relationship where, I, yeah, I subscribe to God. I believe in God like the guy on the Alpha video said. I, I believe in God and every now and then something happens in my life that I subscribe to God, that I say, that I, I, I say I credit God with that and all of that. But when it comes to what I'm experiencing, I don't actually know if I'm on target or not and nothing's actually changing my life. And the only reason is because the reality of what's laid out in the framework of this book is not actually what I'm believing, and I don't know the difference because I don't know this book well enough to understand the difference. 
And so what we're called to is to understand the scriptures, to know them deeply, and then to experience them in our lives. Now, here's the thing. You can also understand some of the doctrine of scriptures and you can understand some of the, the, the answers. But what that's like is it's like if there's an equation, A plus B equals C. And if I memorize the answers to C, like a, in a test at school, and I memorize all the answers and I go and there's a fill in the blank and I can fill in all the blanks and I can answer the questions, it doesn't mean that I know math. It means that I memorize the answers. My kids come home right now and they change the way they start off teaching reading. There's so many sight words now that the kids actually memorize the words instead of memorizing what the words are comprised of and all the phonetics of it. And so, like, it's funny, like, Colton, my youngest in kindergarten, he'll come home and he'll read a whole book to me. And I'm like, I'll just pick out a word and I'll say, what does that word mean? I had no idea. You know, he's got the book memorized. But he doesn't, and that's not a slam on the education system because I'm watching Evan now as he's coming along. It's like someone who learns chords on a guitar first but then goes back and learns all the notes within it. Well, for those of you who aren't musicians, you probably don't know what that means. But it's the same type of thing. And what happens in the Christian faith is that so often we learn the answers, but we haven't had to process the information through our own lives. We haven't had to take this word and watch it work in our lives to understand the answer. We can recite the answer, but we don't know the math. We haven't experienced it. It's like if someone gives you a great camera for a a present and you have this camera and it was free, it was a gift to you, but you never read the manual or understand how it works. And it might be a thousand, a couple thousand dollar camera that can do incredible things, but you can't actually experience the fruit of it unless you understand, you read the manual, you understand how it works, and then you put it to use. Having a sports car sitting in your driveway, but not having a driver's license or knowing how to drive it, what's the point? You know what I mean? It's like, it might look good to my neighbors and I might be like, hey, I have a sports car. And it's like, you don't even drive the sports car, dude. You know, like it doesn't impress me. And there's this sense of like, you can't experience the transformation of Jesus in our lives. We can't experience it unless we, we learn all about him in the scriptures and then we learn to trust him with our lives and apply those things to our lives. In my past, my favorite pastime is surfing. Many of you know that. And uh, there's this not so affectionate term in surfing called poser. And a poser is someone who has all the gear but can't actually do the deed, you know? And uh, that's, it's a derogatory term in, in surfing lingo. But in the church, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of posers. And the reason that George Barna gets the statistics he does is because people are posing. And it's not that, and that's not a derogatory term from where I'm standing. It's not that people are trying to pose necessarily. It's that they don't know any better. They don't realize that there's more to the faith than just showing up at church and paying my dues and, you know, doing my thing and subscribing to Christianity. They, they think that's what Christian is, but it's not what Christianity is. And as a matter of fact, if that's what Christianity is, take me out of it because it's laborsome and it's tough and it doesn't help my life or anybody else's life. And all it does is tick a bunch of people off because now I carry the term of this great religion and yet don't produce anything worthwhile. And I don't, you know, what's the point? But there's something deeper that was the catalyst that started it all. There's something deep and rich and pure and life transforming and beautiful. And it's actually not Christianity. It's not even Christian. It's just Christ. It's Jesus himself. He's the one. And you know what? He's not dead. He's alive. 
And he's still available for us. And you see, the thing is, is that when, when, when Jesus engages this thing, when we open up the scriptures and Jesus engages this topic, he, he asks the same questions all the time. He's like, are you legit or are you a poser? You know, that's, that's what he's asking all the time. But he doesn't ask it in those terms. He asks it in all sorts of other ways. One of the most incredible moments where he reveals this is, you know, John 3.16 is, the, is, the, one of the, is probably the most popular verse in the Bible, or, or maybe Psalm 23, but... Um, John 3.16, it starts with John 3.1, you know, and it's funny how it works. There's, Nicodemus is like, he's like one of the most religious guys ever possible, you know, <laughs> like, and, and here he is, and he comes to Jesus. He would be like the current equivalent of like, you know, an archbishop or something, you know, like this guy's in there, you know, he's got it going. And, he, and, and he comes to Jesus, and it says in chapter 3 of, of John, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Now you got to hear him say this, okay? Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So you know what just happened? He said, we recognize that you're from God. Last week, I was coming in the door right here in the back, and Mel, as he faithfully does, shook my hand and greeted me with that smile. And, you know, it's always warm when I walk through and Mel's there. And, and Mel says to me, <laughs> he says, hey, Tim, I want to ask you a question. Are you a fan or a follower? And when he asked me the question, I just started laughing. I'm like, what an awesome question, you know? And I was like, I know you're not talking about the Phils or the Eagles right now. You know, like you're talking about Jesus. Am I a fan or a follower? And I know that in my heart of hearts, I hope desperately that I am a true, dedicated follower of Jesus, one who trusts him and follows him, not one who's just a fan, that I didn't just go to his Facebook page and click like, you know, so that everyone on my Facebook page can say he subscribes to the Jesus thing, you know, but that there's something radically different about that. There's this living relationship in which I've learned to trust God. And what happens here is that Nicodemus, he just clicked like on the Jesus button. You know what I mean? It was like, we know you're from God. You couldn't be doing these miraculous signs unless you were from God. I did the math, Jesus. A plus B equals this. So you're from God. Okay, we get it. We're there. We understand. And listen to Jesus' response. It's absolutely priceless. This is what he says. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. I don't remember Nicodemus asking about the kingdom of God. I don't remember Nicodemus asking about what he can see and what he can't see. I don't remember this answer seems like an answer that has nothing to do with the phrase that, that Nicodemus just said. He's like, we get it. You're, you must be a teacher from God. And before he can go any further, Jesus is like, check that thought for just a second, fan. I want to tell you something. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Whatever you think you know, you don't know anything yet. Because until you are born again, you can't see. You can't see what you need to see in order to experience what you need to experience. You've got to be born again. Nicodemus is a very rational man. He says that doesn't make any sense. You can't go back into your mother's womb. I don't even want to get into all that. And then there's like, you know, everyone's born of flesh and water, but he says not everyone's born of the Spirit. 
Not everyone's born of the Spirit. If you're going to come alive spiritually, if, you're gonna, if, you're, if you want the life that says there must be more than this, if you want the more than this, you've got to be born of the Spirit of God. And he puts it in this born-again terminology in the sense of like, you're not even born yet. You're not alive yet. You don't see it. You haven't experienced it. And we don't have any more control over the ability to be born of the Spirit than we do in the flesh. And this is what I mean is I cannot make myself come spiritually alive. It's impossible. I cannot make myself become spiritually alive. If I could, there would be no reason at all for Jesus to die on a cross and rise from the dead. You know? The whole reason that he comes and he dies on a cross and rises from the dead is spiritually to change the whole game. And when he changes the game, he makes life possible for me. You know, he gives me that $3,000 camera, you know, that we were talking about. But it doesn't mean that I experience it unless I read the manual and put it to work in my life. You know what I mean? It's like, it's there. The gift is there. I can't do it. He can give birth to this beautiful life within me. But in order to know it, understand it, embrace it, have faith, trust, live within it, I got to understand him, know him in order to trust him and apply it to my life so I can experience him. Jesus goes on and he says, Nicodemus, he's like, you're Israel's teacher. In verse 10, he says, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Just being religious doesn't make us Christian. Just being Christian doesn't make us a Christian. You know what I mean? Move on to chapter 6, and Jesus has a whole other group of people he's interacting with. And in verse 28, it says, Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? What must we do to do the works God requires? You hear that mentality? I know God wants something of me. What do I have to do? What do I do to get it done? And this is, Jesus' answer is amazing. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. What's their job? To believe in Jesus. They got one job. That's it. He doesn't give them a list of rules. That's what religions do. He doesn't give them a list of practices. That's what religions do. He doesn't give them a list of holidays. That's what religions do. You know what he does? He says, you got to trust me. That's what relationships do. You got to believe in me. This isn't the kind of belief that's about whatever, you know, understanding history and that Thomas Edison did such and such. I believe that happened. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about living relationship belief. This is trust. This is what Jen and I have to do when we get into a sticky spot. We got to learn to trust each other. And that's what he's saying. You got to learn to trust me. You have one job to believe in me instead of believing in yourself. Instead of believing in you, you believe in me. That's what the Christian faith is all about, being a follower of Jesus instead of follower of me, you know? And so they, it's amazing how this goes on. He, he, uh, he says in verse 32, he's telling these people, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, talking about the manna in the Old Testament. He says, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. They're like, we want the more abundant life. We want the, the more than this. And listen to what he says. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. He doesn't give them practices. He doesn't give them religion. All he says is, all you need is one thing. You need me. You know, that emptiness, that hunger inside of you, that thing you feel, that gnawing sensation that there's more to life than this? 
feast on me. Come and consume me. And if you make your consuming of this world all about anything other than me, you will go empty. But if you decide there's only one thing that satisfies your heart and it's me, you will never go hungry again. Their response is really interesting in verse 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Listen, verse 42. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? See how this works? What did Jesus put on them that was so hard? Honestly, what did he ask them to do that was that difficult? What did he say? If you're going to follow me, man, you've got to man up. I'm telling you the kind of religion we got, this is hardcore. We're going to boot camp. You know, He doesn't, none of that. You've got to believe me. You've got to trust me. I'm the gift that God gave to you. Trust me. And you know they can't handle it. And you know why, right? Because the toughest thing is to be broken enough and humble enough to receive the help when we need it. And the toughest thing in the world was for them to be at a place where they actually trusted Jesus with their life instead of trusting themselves with their life. It wasn't the fact that the practices of some religion were too difficult for them. It's that the teaching about this man being the one they have to trust was too much because they didn't want to trust him. They didn't want to believe him. The faith that they were supposed to subscribe to, they didn't actually want their heads to wrap around it. They didn't want to embrace it. Later on, Jesus says, in very hard language in verse 53, he says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And that's when it starts to get really hairy. You know, on hearing it in verse 66, it says, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? The Spirit gives life and the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. He doesn't ask anything of them just to believe. But the teaching, what it actually says in this book, what he actually tells us to trust in is something that's so bizarre and so counterintuitive to everything that this world screams to us that when we hear it, we say that's ridiculous. But most of us don't even hear it because we've never understood what it actually says. And so we've never processed and we've never taken the truths of it and the doctrines of it and made them a reality and had to trust them in our lives. But when we do, we begin to test drive the car. We begin to experience life in Christ. And what he tells us is, is our job is to believe. His job is to change us. That different life, it's not our job to create it. It's his job. He goes on in, in John in chapters 14 to 17. He talks all about the Holy Spirit. And he says, then when I go away, you're going to get this comforter and this guide and he's your advocate and he's all these things he calls him. And he goes on and on and on about this other person, the Holy Spirit. And you, you saw in the Alpha video how the guy was saying, this is the first time that I really had the Holy Spirit explained to me. And I understood that it was the, the part of the Trinity that never really leaves me, you know, that he's present with me. And what God's saying is, if you trust me, the Holy Spirit will begin to live inside of you. 
and will change your life. Now, here's the difference between all the things that the statistics reveal from George Barna about Christians versus what that original term means. The difference is that when we begin to trust our lives to Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to live within us. And Galatians 5 tells us that he begins to produce fruit in our life. And that fruit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Now, listen, if you do the statistics and you look at what a Christian really is, if it's a little Christ and if the Holy Spirit is living within them, imagine if the statistics revealed this. Look, I can't pin down who's in the Christian faith and who's not, but I just took a massive statistical, uh, uh, you know, I, we did all the surveys and, and, we, and we did all the research and all we have is there's like normal life and then there's this pocket of people over here. And these people, they're radically different. There are people who are full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. How, those people there, let's come up with a name for them. And the name is followers of Jesus, little Christ, Christian. And that's what the Christian life actually is. Jesus said in chapter 10 of John that he came to give us life and give it to us abundantly. He wants to answer my neighbor and he wants to answer many of us by saying, oh, there's something that's just so good. There's something that's so, so, so good, you know? But there's one thing that has to change and that it's, it's that you gotta trust me. You really gotta trust me. And one of the ways that we trust him is by knowing him. The primary way is by knowing him through here. That's the whole point of all the Christian education stuff that we talked about all day today with Journey Kids and Downpour and Alpha and the Sunday school classes and all of that is to help us understand this so that we can know him, so that we can trust him and experience him and see life more abundantly. I wanna tell you about one one uh, story here as we close things up. There's a... Uh, there's this book I've been reading. It's called Tortured for Christ, written by this guy, Richard Wormbrand. And he's, he was the founder of Voice of the Martyrs, uh, which is an organization about Christian martyrs throughout history and, and also all, all around the world currently because we live in a much different place in the world than most people do in Christian faith. And uh, he was, a, he was a, a, a Romanian guy um, at the end of World War II he was, in, he was in Romania during World War II, and he's a Jew. So being in that situation is obviously really tough. What's also tough is he was a Christian. He was a Jewish Christian, Romanian, pastor, bad combo around those times in that part of the world. And as World War II comes to an end, there's also Russia taking over Romania and communist Russia trying to totally obliterate Christianity. And in the middle of that, what's interesting is, is this guy, it's a great time to run for the hills, but instead of running for the hills, you know what this guy did? He ran to Russia and he decided that he was called to be an evangelist to Russian soldiers. That's hardcore. (laughs) That's hardcore. This is what he writes. This is amazing. You got to hear it. For me, to preach the, to preach the gospel to Russians is heaven on earth. I've preached the gospel to, many, uh, to men of many nations, but I've never seen a people drink in the gospel like the Russians. They have such thirsty souls. An Orthodox priest, a friend of mine, telephoned me and told me that a Russian officer had come to him to confess. My friend did not know Russian. However, knowing that I speak Russian, he had given him my address. The next day, this man came to see me. He longed for God, but he had never seen a Bible. He had no religious education and never attended religious services. He loved God without the slightest knowledge of him. 
I read to him the Sermon on the Mount and the parables of Jesus. And after hearing them, he danced around the room in rapturous joy, proclaiming, Oh, what wonderful beauty. How could I live without knowing this Christ? It was the first time I saw someone so joyful in Christ. Then I made a mistake. I read to him the passion and crucifixion of Christ without having him prepared him for this. He had not expected it. And when he heard how Christ was beaten and how he was crucified, and in the end he died, he fell into an armchair and began to weep bitterly. He had believed in a Savior, and now his Savior was dead. I looked at him, and I was ashamed. I had called myself a Christian, a pastor, and a teacher of others. But I had never shared in the sufferings of Christ as this Russian officer now shared them. Looking at him, it was like seeing Mary Magdalene weeping at the foot of the cross, faithfully weeping when Jesus was a corpse in the tomb. Then I read to him the story of the resurrection, and I watched his expression change. He had not known that his Savior arose from the tomb. And when he heard this wonderful news, he beat his knees and he swore using very dirty but very holy profanity. This was his crude manner of speech. And again, he rejoiced, shouting for joy. He's alive! He is alive! And he danced around the room once more, overwhelmed with happiness. I said to him, let us pray. He did not know how to pray. He did not know our holy phrases. He fell on his knees together with me and his words of prayer were this. Oh God, what a fine chap you are. (laughs) If I were you and you were me, I would never have forgiven you of your sins. But you really are a very nice chap. I love you with all my heart. I think that all the angels in heaven stopped what they were doing to listen to this sublime prayer from a Russian officer. The man had been one for Christ. What does it mean to know the scriptures and to have them change our lives? How well do you know them? How well do you know him? How much is it giving you the abundant life? Join in. Dive in. Learn to trust him. Join Alpha. Learn to know the scriptures more. Come to the Sunday school class. Have the kids in Journey Kids. Engage. Be a part of it. Not because it makes us Christian to do those things. Not because we subscribe to the religion by doing those things. Not because we feel better about ourselves if we get more involved. But because the abundant life comes in knowing and trusting Him. And knowing this is how we get to know Him. And then learning to trust Him with our lives is taking Him for a ride in our lives and seeing just how beautiful it is. Let's pray.